Hello, Looking Glass listeners. Welcome, and maybe even welcome back, to The Infinite Room, a little space where we imagine big things. Each episode, Looking Glass artists talk about theater and how it intersects with the world. Sometimes that means fellow theater artists, sometimes it means the larger Chicago community, and sometimes it means the world writ large. And at a time when every day we are all figuring it out as we go, as best we can, how we navigate these uncertain, unchartered waters and how we connect with each other, our hope is that this is a place where worlds collide, but, you know, in, in a good way, where we engage our curiosity about each other and how we will work together to move us all forward. I'm Andy White. I'm a Looking Glass Ensemble member and the Director of Community Engagement. And today we have a conversation with our friends at the Chicago Help Initiative, with whom Looking Glass is in its fourth year of partnership. The Chicago Help Initiative lends a helping hand to assist people in Chicago who are in need and experiencing hunger and homelessness. Their programs are many and varied, from serving meals to providing tutoring and job training and literacy classes, and I'm not going to go through them all right now except to say that you should check out their website at chicagohelpinitiative.org to learn about all of those programs. Our focus today will be the way that we intersect, which is primarily through their arts and culture group which brings people who are experiencing homelessness to cultural events and experiences, including at Looking Glass. A group of about 20 guests has come to see every Looking Glass production since early 2017, and we sit down over a meal afterwards with a couple of actors and or members of the running crew, and we talk about the show. We talk about everything from the literary roots of it, if it's something like Moby Dick, or the politics of it, if it's something like Plantation, or the sheer mechanics and the gorgeous storytelling of The Steadfast Tin Soldier, for example. Our conversations are amazing, insightful, and always full of wonder, and I always look forward to them. With us today, we have Jacqueline Hayes, the founder and president emerita. Hi, Jacqueline. Hello. Also with us is Susan Gold, the arts and culture program coordinator, a 17-year member with the organization and also a former board member. Hi, Susan. Hi. And joining us by phone, on a landline, no less, is John Riley, one of the members of the Arts and Culture Group. Hi, John. Hi, how are you, Andy? I'm well. Thank you so much, all three of you, um, for for coming into the infinite room. Make yourselves comfortable. Pull up a chair. Um, you know, make sure make sure that the, the pillows are suitably soft. Uh, Jacqueline, I was hoping to start with you. Can you just talk a little bit about how Chicago Help Initiative started? What was the initial impulse? How it's grown? Um, in 1999, the city closed Lower Wacker Drive to the homeless that were living there. I happened to be a real estate broker specializing in high-end retail on Michigan Avenue and Oak Street. And a lot of the homeless would come and start living in the doorways of the spaces I was leasing on the avenue. And I told them to get out of there. They were hurting my business. And then I thought, I, I, I felt so guilty that I thought, oh my God, we have to do something about it. And I was and still am a director of the Magnificent Mile Association. And I went to them and I said, we have to do something about this. This is not a place, a way people should live. So I gathered together um, a multitude of organizations, including the Magnificent Mile Association, the River North Association, the Streeterville Organization of Active Residents, Holy Name, Fourth Press, Catholic Charities, and Northwestern. Memorial Hospital. And we met for a year, uh, once a month, and created a two-sided card of how to 
um, help the homeless. And after it was done, as I said, it took us a year. After it was done, they said, oh, we work so well together, let's do housing. And I just about fainted because I thought it took us a year to do a two-sided card. I could imagine how long it would take us to do housing. But I was extremely blessed. Monsignor Bowen, who was then the president of Catholic Charities, offered me his dining hall at the facilities of Catholic Charities on LaSalle Street. And our first meal was served in March of 2001. Um, it was provided by Eli's Place for Steak, which is where uh, Children's Memorial is now. And uh, uh, Mark Schulman uh, was our first donor. He's a great supporter of ours. Um, we just started with the meals, um, but nine months after, I wanted our guests to fill out a, a, a survey. So I knew that the meal was at the right time and so on and so forth. And they weren't doing it. And I said, come on, guys. I thought you were, we were buddies. And they said, we can't read. So that started us off um, with all of our programs. We Instead of just providing a meal, we started providing programs that would help those in need to improve the quality of their lives. Now, what happened is that um, we were asked to speak at one of the dinners for the Magnificent Mile Association and um, uh, because they honored the charities that they worked with. And I had uh, our star pupil, if you will, who was in our adult learning program, speak. And he, because uh, he ended up going to Wright Junior College and got a two-year associate's degree and a job at Loretto Hospital. And so Adele spoke and he said how, you know, the Adult learning program was really good. It helped motivate and blah, blah, blah. But the thing that motivated him the most was he got to go see the Blue Man Group. And he got to go see the stained glass windows at Navy Pier. And he got to go see a Northwestern football game. He said, I got to see how other people lived. And that motivated me. Hey, John, can you talk a little bit about how you found Chicago Help Initiative or how it found you? Um, I was... Uh, I, I met someone who told me about the dinner on Wednesday night. Um, and that was actually, I think, the way most people are introduced to the Chicago Health Initiative. And once you go to one of the dinners, you find out that there's just an enormous number of programs that uh, you're eligible to participate in if you want. Uh, you don't have to, but um, um, as well as services, um, doctors, lawyers, lawyers. Um, uh, all, all kinds of, you know, uh, job searches and um, all kinds of services that, 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 that people need in, in the socioeconomic position that we find ourselves in at the moment. So um, that, that's how I found out about Chicago Health Initiative and then started to participate in, in programs that interested me. Um, I'm a member of the book club, the club, um, as well as the Arts and Culture Club. Susan, you're the coordinator of the Arts and Culture Club. Can you talk a little bit about how that started? We have, as you know, like so many educational programs, we have um, computer, we used to call it, adu it's adult learning. We used to call it literacy because we would try to help people get a GED. And now it's just evolved into so many other things, you know, the book clubs and art clubs. And the program that I became involved with a few years ago as we developed is the uh, arts and culture group. We have developed it so far as to have a group of 20 to 25 people enjoying the arts through the benefit of people such as yourself and Looking Glass and Steppenwolf and 
um, auditorium theater. There's many um, people out there that are so kind. And we really, really have found that adding this dimension to people's lives, showing them that there's things out there that they're missing in life that they normally just don't have access to, um, has made a difference. It It's improved the quality of their lives. It's shown them that there's more to life than basically just being poor. And in some instances, in the older people, it's just given them a, you know, an opportunity that they've never had in their life. And they're grateful as they're, you know, in an older age, because the people in my group range from 40 to 70. And, um, you know, their circumstances in life have prohibited them from doing the things that, you know, that people do every day. Hey, John, you know, of course, those of us lucky enough to be in the world of arts and culture think that we think our work is essential. Um, but the reality is that for many people such as yourself, there are actual physical necessities in life, you know, food, shelter, clothing that are often in, in short supply or in jeopardy. So I don't I don't want to overestimate or, for that matter, underestimate the value that seeing a play might have. So I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to the impact that the cultural experiences you've had at Looking Glass and elsewhere have had, and, and what do they offer or provide? Going to Looking Glass, I think the most important thing, I, I think, is to remember that all that, all that we discover is that being human um, knows no socioeconomic condition. You know, that, and, and, and sometimes when you're in, um, you know, a less than perfect situation in life, you sometimes can forget that. Um, but that that whatever we bring to the table when we get together, or when we're in the audience, um, is an, an opportunity to see the human experience. You know, we see um, people who change their lives or don't. Um, we see people who change opinions. It helps us change opinions. Um, and it translates those experience um, to a personal experience. And you're talking so, about in the in the plays themselves, people change their yeah. lives or they change their minds right. or the experience. Right. Uh -huh. well, they don't. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's there, there's an, a feeling sometimes if you're in a in the lower socioeconomic situation that you're sort of on the margin looking in. Um, and what theater, and, and, and obviously Looking Glass does it superbly well, is to help us understand what that human condition is. Um, and that it's, it's something that we're all, <clears throat> excuse me, it's something that we're all part of. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I've seen people, you know, change their opinions on things based on what they've seen on stage, um, and admit it. Um, and it can help. It ha I've seen it help people in self awareness mm -hmm. because it makes them think, "Oh, wait, I understand that." Um, and, and and I have I have a similar situation. So I mean, I, I think that. Um, that theater at its best is really a source of inspiration. 
Mm. And I think that's that's what, and it's, and it's extended when we have the opportunity of sitting down with actors after the performance. Yeah. Um, and getting to know them and getting to know what, what it takes to get to that point um, in the play. So, um, and, and, and an opportunity to see them as human beings off the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and how different they are than the characters they play. Sure. So I mean, that's a tremendous opportunity and, and, and one that very few people um, who go to Looking Glass get to do that. Um, and we're fortunate enough to have that experience. I'm so interested in what you're describing because um, we're thinking a lot about right now about how we currently can't get together in the same space and share experience and hear different points of view together, right, in in the same room. We can we can hear it on the radio and hopefully do, or you can hear it on this podcast or you know or other um, ways online. But breaking bread together, being in the same room together, is currently impossible um and it is so fundamental to who we are as humans and especially what you're describing which is the ability to hear different points of view from the characters but also every time you hear an actor uh come off stage and talk about their experience you're also uh, you know learning that they are adopting a different point of view from their own exactly and it also i mean it's it's interesting to see how in many cases, a character helps an actor in their own self awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that, that sometimes is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, we learn so much <laughs> about all these different worlds that we, as actors we get to travel in every time right. we get to put on literally you know, someone else's shoes. But we get to do that as an audience member too, mm. I think. Um, we, you know, we, we get to go into a world we may or may not know. Uh, and as I said before, we, we get to see people change their lives or are not changing their lives. I have a question, John, because um, Susan was just referencing the isolation that people are, that we are all in to some degree, but probably some more than others. And I know that you in particular have been quarantined, right? Um, yes. So tell me again, I uh, or tell us again, I think you said you got some good news yesterday. What was that? I did. I had, um, last week on Thursday, I was tested for coronavirus, and the results came back yesterday, and it was ne- they were negative. So I have I do not have coronavirus, that, and I'm quarantined. So I'm in a very safe position. That's that's great. And but where were you before you are where you are now? Um, I was in a shelter. Okay. Um, and how? Um, how long were you at that shelter, or or was it sort of an indefinite? Period. Sort of an indefinite period. Yeah. Now he's in a hotel. Right. And, and having room service. <laughs> which, which is, which is, which is great. <laughs> and, 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 and as, as it should be. I mean, it just must be hard to be, you know, to, to not even have those communal meals together on Wednesday nights, etc. How are you, how are you doing with that? Well, you know, one sort of physical thing is that I'm, that I'm, I'm sort of losing, I get laryngitis because I'm not talking. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's one of those things, if you don't use your voice, you start to lose it. Right, use it or lose it, as they say, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, the opportunity, obviously, for human interaction um, 
is, you know, it's is, is, it's part of the human condition, and it's something that we're, you know, that that I'm cut off from, and but but so is everybody else. But I can now at least pick up a phone and call people. I can go online and stay in touch with you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Um, yeah. So, so that's that's a big help, and I like to read, so I've been reading. And, yeah. Um, but yes, of course, I miss the you know human interaction and the opportunity of um, discussing things on an intellectual level or um, or an artistic level or you know or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, it's it is it is difficult now, but you know it's something you know we all go through, and hopefully you know maybe I'll be more self-aware at the end of this. Hmm. You're pretty self-aware now, John. I gotta say, <laughs> um, Jacqueline and Susan. Now that people can no longer meet for a hot meal in the Catholic Charities Dining Hall, how have you adapted your delivery? How are you now getting the food to the people who need it? Well, you, since you can't have crowds, we can't have them come into the dining hall. We still get our hot meals delivered. We put them in containers and we um, distributed them to the guests as they come to the outside of the building. Last week was an exceptional meal um, um, provided by a 50-50 restaurant group. And in addition to that, each of the uh, container bag meals, if you will, uh, hot bag meals, contained hand sanitizers and uh, face masks because we care about our friends. And we know that it's hard for them to get these things. And so that was that. We started a program um, for ourselves. And that was asking people to bring um, a sandwich bag, a food bag. And we give them a list of what's in that we require to have in the bag. And it's a sandwich, a drink, a, a snack, a dessert, a, a juice or a water. And then people are very generous. And, they, and we actually also ask them to make sure you have a napkin and sometimes a packet of pocket Kleenexes. And it's grown because we now do it on, we collect these bags on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday mornings. We are collecting close to 2,000 bags of food a week now. And the food depository asked us if we would cover um, one or two of their sites that had to close down. Also, there's shelters. On Saturday mornings, there's a shelter. Well, I'm sorry, the shelter's there every day. But I bring food there on Saturday mornings. Once we have collected, I bring like over 300 bags to Cornerstone uh, Shelter, which is in Uptown. They house 310 people, and their food program has been curtailed. They are so grateful that when I show up, you know, at 11 o'clock or 11.30 every Saturday morning with my car so filled you can't see out of it, that... They take that food and they feed people for several days. So it's quite, you know, it's quite of a turn of events for us because from going from just Wednesday, you know, because like I said, we're still doing our afternoon meal, which is a hot meal, which is separate and apart from all the other bag meals that we get and that we help to distribute. Um, it's really become a large endeavor. Uh, Doug Fraser, our executive director, has arranged for a food truck to be donated and we use the Fight to Feed group to prepare hot breakfasts. We are busier now than ever. And we are about to try and help everybody. We're trying to get our hands on some hand 
uh, washing stations and other things because again, uh, everybody's supposed to shelter in place, right? And wash their hands all the time. Well, if you don't have a place to stay, you can't do that. So we're trying to overcome some of the obstacles. And a client of mine owns a couple of restaurants and he doesn't want his, he, he's paying, he wants to continue paying his employees. He's now providing meals on Saturday and Sunday. So we're trying our darndest to have have everybody, um, their need, their, certainly their food needs helped for. And certainly their, their hand sanitizer and face mask needs. And we can't wait until we can start doing the other experiences, the book club, et cetera, and the arts and culture program. I think one of the things, one of the things that's uh, so interesting about being able to collect these bag meals is that I think a lot of people feel trapped in their homes. And when they have an opportunity to help somebody else, and all they have to do is put it together and, and, and drive over in their car and hand it to somebody, it makes them feel good. And this is, this is something I always used to say, I never would really knew who benefited more, the guests that we fed or the volunteers that were participants. Because the relationship was so amazing between our guests and ourselves that we we really learn to love each other and there's nothing better in this world than love and art <laughs> so there you go um john uh you're currently at the hotel as as has been mentioned do you know what your status is how long you'll be able to stay there um i'm hoping yeah go ahead it depends on when the governor and the mayor decide that they're going to um, end the um, shelter-in-place order. Um, uh, this is being um, <clears throat> operated by the city, so with the mayor, if she's in agreement with the governor, who still has not yet decided um, when the shelter-in-place order, if it will be extended or it will end, on the 30th, which is what is currently scheduled to do. Uh, he's still debating in, with his advisors about what the, what's going to happen there. So I'm here until the shelter-in-place order is lifted. Yeah. Um, one an odd, talk about uh, odd paradoxes. On the one hand, of course, it'll be great when the shelter-in-place order is lifted because we'll be able to do some of the things we're talking about. On the other hand, I don't want you thrown out of there. You know, I'd, 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 um, you know, if, you know, for for uh, you have decent housing for um, uh, a little bit, and I'd, I'd, of course, that's the way it should be at all times for everyone. I just wish it could continue to be the case for you. Not, I mean, you know, not not only in a that, that a pandemic isn't the only time that you get that. Um, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, well, I just want to say something about Jackie and Susan. I mean, you know, theater and at its very best is reflection of life. Um, and these two individuals are a reflection of the very best in life. Mm. I mean, nobody cares more about people um, and, and what happens to them and, and what will help them more than, than Jackie and Susan. And, and they should know that there's many, many, many of us who are so grateful to them. So thank you, ladies. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you. We, we appreciate you as well. Thank you. 
when people talk to me about the people that I serve, I tell them all the time, those people are not those people. Those people are us without a paycheck. And if you think about it in those terms, you change the way you see people. You don't see them any differently than you would see your neighbor or your friend or, you know, anyone else. It's it's circumstances. You know, in the end, it's they're people are people and you have to if you see them as such, it's amazing how much easier it is to help someone else. One of the reasons I'm so grateful to Looking Glass that as a basis program that, you know, we've been able to get involved in other programs. And I just want to mention Steppenwolf, that Gary Sinise has a, um, and I'm sure you know about this, they have the Veterans Program. And they have a dinner and the show for veterans uh, groups. Um, for every play that they put on at Steppenwolf, they have, and it's the last night of dress rehearsal. And they have it. Well, they, they, we went, they've invited us one time. And now they went through and accepted the Chicago Help Initiative as part of their family. Even though we're not all veterans, there are some mixed in. But they think that our group belongs with the other people that they serve. And they recognize that, too, because they knew that you and Looking Glass were supporting us. And so that had them take a second look into helping us. And so that, you know, like I'm able to take my group two, three times, a, you know, a season to the shows there and dinner. They have a, a dinner, you know, in their rehearsal hall. It means the world that we're, um, that the group are recognized, you know, that they are, their lives are given credence. And it means the world to them. I mean, it has really, really enhanced their lives. I mean, Andy... Uh, I I could never thank you enough or, or say enough about it. And I believe that it it is because you're all connected and you know what the others are doing. And Chicago is a big, warm-hearted town. I can't wait for the three of us to finally be able to get back together again and over a meal uh, and talk about another play at Looking Glass and um, and just, you know, and, and be with each other again. Um, I know that we all look forward to that. I want to thank the three of you so much for joining us. Thank you, Susan, Jack, Jacqueline, John. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Um, listeners, if you've listened before to The Infinite Room, you know that each episode we close by giving a quick shout out to one of our community partners who are doing good work in Chicago to help make life a little bit easier for people. Last week, we directed you towards the Chicago Help Initiative. And since they are here with us today, and since they are doing such amazing work adapting to these changing times and still serving the people who need our help, we want to send you there again. You can find them at chicagohelpinitiative.org. You can learn more about their amazing work there. But as you've heard today, they do powerful, impactful work. Go to their website. Please give as generously as you can. We also want to give a shout out to one of our donors who makes this and all of our work at Looking Glass possible. And that's Janice Feinberg and the Joseph and Bessie Feinberg Foundation. I've had many a conversation with Janice, and I have met few people who are as committed as she is to changing Chicago for the better. Thank you all again for hanging out with us for a little bit today. 
Every day, Looking Glass artists are committed to sharing our creativity despite the distance that we find ourselves in. Everything from this podcast to virtual arts education classes to the shows we will produce the moment we can get back on that stage and see you back in our lobby again, it's all made possible by you. It's the support of incredible people like you who donate to Looking Glass and bring our work to life. So if you are able... Please consider making a donation to Looking Glass today. You can do so at lookingglasstheater.org. Our artistic director is Heidi Stillman. Our executive director is Rachel Fink. Audio engineer is Stephanie Senior, and our theme music is by Rick Sims. Please check out the Looking Glass website at lookingglasstheater.org to find out more about our next episode and other ways that you can stay in touch with the Looking Glass family. Thanks, and talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.